Hi, I'm Céline Boujak and I'm joined today by Professor Ludwig Filippo from the University of Oxford Said Business School. Professor Filippo has done extensive research on private markets, with his latest paper looking into the performance of private equity funds drawing a lot of criticism from the industry. We discuss what he finds problematic in the way funds report their performance, why the word democratization makes his blood boil, and what new investors, considering investing in private equity, should watch out for. I'd like to get your thoughts on what you think about this um, democratization trend of private equity. More and more firms are going after individual investors. They want to expand their distribution. Do you see some dangers in this or do you see it as a positive development? Yeah, I, I, I have to control my blood pressure each time I heard that word democratization. I think the, the, the person who came up with that is, is one of his marketing geniuses. It's very interesting to see how the language carries a lot of weight and, and brings in a very strong message in, 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 in what is like a, a, an innocuous way at first sight. It's, it's extraordinary to me. And I think it, in this world of like fake news and the like, we are, we are right into that. When, when people never really lie, but the choice of words or the way they spin things has, has actually a huge you know, uh, 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 connotation that, that is actually extremely, extremely strong. So, you know, like the things like is the same when people talk about value creation, whenever like, like they take the difference between the value at the end uh, when they set a company and the value at the beginning, but that's not value creation. That's a difference in value, but it's not the value creation. This value was not necessarily created. And you get this language into people's mind and then, then they start talking about value creators. And then, and then if somebody is a value creator, why would you tax a value creator? A value creator is someone you want. And, and so this is extremely perverse uh, 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 and very powerful uh, uh, tool that people are using. And democratization is the same thing. It's like, who would be against democratization, right? Like, like nobody is against democratization. Now, let me relabel that as uh, any idiot can be ripped off by some people that are 10 times as knowledgeable as them. Like, now, is everybody so happy with that trend? Um, so it, 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 it's a very, very bad word uh, that has now become commonplace because, of course, the, all the marketing people love it. Um, it's, you, you cannot be against democratization. These are people that are wealthy enough, okay? And if they want to uh, blow their wealth on some, you know, obscure products with extremely high fees, many, many layers of fees, especially the smaller they are, the more layers of fees there are, they have no control on their assets. They give full power to someone else that they just have to trust will do okay with their, with their money. There's no protection of any sorts. Um, you could say, well, you know, if some people feel like doing that with their money, it's their right. And, and, and sure, it's, it probably is their right. So what, all, all I would like as an academic is people to have full information and, 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 and again, in a way that they can absorb it. And then I'm happy to, to, to say, okay, fine, if they want to, you know, it's like if people want to bet on Bitcoins and yeah, let them, let them do it. But I, I still don't think that it is, it, it is not without consequences for society. I do have lots of people contacting me because they've been abused by some banks on the results of products. You know, I had like one big case like this where somebody told me like, 
I would like your advice because I was sold the synthetic priority equity fund. And that was like 15 years ago. Like, what, what's, what's a synthetic priority equity fund? And the guy said, well, it's this bank. They told me that I couldn't invest in priority equity because I was just an individual investor. I'm, it was a wealthy guy, retired. And he said, like, so what they told me I could do then is that I could choose a priority equity fund and they, would, and they would call the money from me when these guys are calling it and return the money to me when they return it. So that it's as if I was invested with that fund, but it's like a synthetic product. I'm not actually an investor in that fund. They're just matching the cash flows of that fund for me. And so it's a synthetic priority equity fund. I had never heard of that. Like I thought like, whoa, it's like, you know, again, completely amazing. Somebody would come up with something like that. And then this guy was saying, I need your help because I think this fund, there is no way this fund has returned so little. So they call all this money from me and they're hardly returning anything to me. And it has been now 12 years. And there is no way this fund has returned so little money because they, are, they have kept on raising some more funds and they seem to be doing well. So if people would have got only this back, like there's no way they would raise so much money. And you're there with that guy and like, yeah, you should just have never... Put, and he had put like half of his retirement wealth in it. And, and you, you could say, look, you know, I can only say, you know, what do you tell to this person? Like, you, you're an idiot. You were naive. You thought that, you know, you, you believed in Santa Claus and then it doesn't exist. So too bad for you. You know, you were rich. You lost it. Too bad for you. You know, I still feel, you know, you could say we, we don't care about these people. I care about them. I think it's unfair. I, I, <laughs> I don't think it's right. Now you can say, well, this person was amazingly naive, and that's what happens to naive people. Sure, but you know, maybe that's why I'm a teacher. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should just let people down like this. So, so sure, you could have called the synthetic private equity fund a democratization, so that anybody could have access to private equity thanks to a synthetic private equity fund. Um, I wouldn't call that democratization. I would have called that, you know, you can join, you can join a, a giant ripoff. And then, then, you know, and, and, and then people will say, oh, this, this is a bad word. This is not the right vocabulary. Well, I have the same issue with democratization. Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, it's uh, kind of opens the gateways to mis-selling and these types of issues where someone invests in something but they we, don't understand? It, it, it all depends what is the definition of mis-selling. If mis-selling is, you know, already the example I started with, you have... You send a prospectus to someone that says, we have 30% return since inception. This number, again, is not a lie because they calculate it as an internal rate of return. The internal rate of return is 30%. The kind of internal rate of return has written uh, as rate, uh, has written as far as, uh, uh, among the three words. And so if you say, you know, we have a return of 30% annualized, all you forgot to mention was internal rate uh, added to that. But so it's kind of a lie by omission. So it's not exactly a lie. It's kind of a lie. Um, so, so going back to the mis-selling would be, well, it, it, are we already mis-selling product? Whenever somebody is quoting an IR, implying that it is like the money earned on dollar invested, isn't that already mis-selling? And, and most people would say, no, it's okay. It's like, you know, people should know these things. Everybody knows these things. So it's okay for me to say something misleading because everybody knows that. And, and, and so if you go to retail investors, it would be a bit harder to make that argument, say, well, everybody knows that IR can, can be bizarre. Um, so, so in a sense, the mis-selling is already happening. 
Um, people have no idea. You go to the trustees of any pension funds and you, you ask them to read an LPA for you. They have no idea what's written in it. I barely understand what's written in an LPA. So we already have all kinds of investor, institutional investors that are signed up and, and were responsible for investments, which they do not understand, like the contracts that are behind it, that governs their money or that the, the money they have fiduciary duty for and, and do not really understand performance reporting, et cetera. So, so when you bring it to, to, to retail investors, yeah, I think there will be a lot of lawsuits uh, on this. And in fact, you know, in the US, there are already a few cases like this that have popped up with corporate pension funds where people opened it to, 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 to some of their employees that are retail people. And they have sued for having been given too complex uh, uh, financial products. So you've done a lot of research on this. What are the problems with private equity performance reporting? Uh, the, the basic problem, the most fundamental problem with performance reporting is that the number that is shown to people most often as a return is not the rate of return. So it's as basic and as fundamental as that. So basically, when people receive prospectuses or brochures or see some consultant slides. Very often you have numbers like since inception, our returns have been 30% annualized. Um, in most people's mind, what that means is if I gave $1, I earn 30% every year on my dollar. This is what most people would understand. So then they would think that if you earn 30% on your money, uh, after two years, you have basically doubled your money. Um, because they read, you know, since inception, our track record is 30% annualized return. So that, that would mean doubling your money every three years. That would be in, indeed an amazing, uh, an amazing track, track record. And this number is very common. We see most private equity firms have these kind of numbers, 25, 30, 35%. Um, and, um, but when you look at the money multiple, that money multiple is usually right around 1.5 for about everyone. And what that means then is that you haven't multiplied your money by two in three years because investments have been held on average four to five years and, and, and with your multiple of 1.5. So what that means is that to double your money, you need to hold 10 years to your investments and not three years. And so right there, it's kind of obvious to someone who knows where to look that this, this 30% is not what, what it is and uh, what this means in most people's mind. It's not a rate of return. And, and so the money multiple um, shows that it's around 1.5. We know investments are held for four to five years. And so annualized, it means it's about 10% a year. Um, and in fact, when we make retail measurements properly, we do find that it's about 10, 12% a year for the average private equity fund, both in the US and, and, and globally. And 10, 12% a year turns out to be the rate of return of the average stock in the US over about any time period. And, and so that's in a nutshell and fundamentally the issue with performance reporting. There is always this claim that private equity beats the public markets, right? But uh, with, when you look at the numbers, you've seen that this is not always the case. Well, so you can, you, the, because you have so much flexibility and it's like that in many uh, things in finance, you can always show that is what we, you want to show because you can always find some public equity benchmarks that 
private equity, the average private equity fund will have beaten. Um, in Europe, it's actually, you know, if you just look at public equity and private equity returns, it looks like private equity returns have beaten public equity pretty clearly. Uh, if you are just looking at that nicely, like public versus private, um, and the rest of the world seems about equal. Uh, in the US, it's about equal. But again, because there are so many public equity indices and ways to cut and dice the data, that you can show any result you want. And so in my research, I've, I've explained to people what are the key patterns in public and private equity data so that people can understand how people will slice the data in order to show the result they want to show. What is clear is that you don't have a massive underperformance of private equity. That's, that's not clear, but, but, but it's clear. Private equity has performed in line with like very close to public equities, sometimes slightly below, most of the time slightly above, um, to show a, a large outperformance, like what consultants often show. For that, you would need to uh, you need to start tweaking a bit and choosing your benchmarks and, and strategically, etc. If we can talk about the fees a little bit, again, in your research, you've looked at this and recently you analyzed the revenue sources at some of the biggest private equity houses. What does that tell us about um, what these firms are doing, how much they're charging and whether the high fees really make sense? So all the, all the performance I just cited is net of fees. So, um, but it's without without adjusting for risk, right? So it's just like a plain comparison of public versus private equity. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to fees, if you simulate on data uh, the fee structure we read in limited partnership agreements, plus minus, it's a six to seven percent a year, uh, which is a number never heard of in any asset class. Uh, we have we have fees of like 150 basis points for public equity mutual funds or things like that. So uh, even hedge funds are more like 400 basis points, but things like 600 to 700 is unheard of. Um, but but we don't have data on fees. Um, nobody say how much fees they are paying. Nobody exactly says how much things they are collecting. So the closest you can get to this data is when you look at the annual report of a Blackstone, KKR, et cetera, because they are publicly listed, they give all their revenues. So then you should see all the fees. The problem is that they are doing all kinds of things. And then, and to scale it is pretty hard because they report this AUM, fee-earning AUM, non-fee-earning AUM. Like, and it's actually extremely hard to, from the annual reports, to get an idea about what, what is the fee uh, they are getting per dollar invested like in private equity. Well, that kind of ties into issues around transparency as well, right? As the asset class opens up to more investors, I mean, are there problems with transparency and how can new investors can assess what's going on within private equity? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the industry often say, well, we don't have a problem with transparency. We show everything to our investors. And, and this is true. So... But it's even to a point where it's like death by by PDFs. So um, when you invest in a private equity fund, like literally it's hundreds of pages of documentation you receive in a year on all kinds of things. So it's not so much a problem of transparency because you kind of get like all kinds of data. It's a problem of 
of standardization, like like to to be in a situation where the, the consumer can com compare and has metrics that make sense. Like if he, if a consumer receives like a, a performance number that it actually means what he or she thinks it should mean, right? Uh, and so it's not a problem of transparency so much. It's a problem of standardization and absorption of information. From uh, kind of an understanding and information point of view for new investors, let's say financial advisors or wealth managers who are looking at private equity to invest, what are some of the top you know, key things, in your opinion, that they need to consider and understand? Maybe like like focus a lot less on track records or you know like they're they're, they're gamed anyway they're they're you know they're manufactured so if if you are confident that you understand this the world of finance and of private markets then sure look for fund managers and then evaluate them on how pertinent their strategy is so the, the fundamental questions are. What is it you're going to do exactly? Why are you the best at this? What makes you think you will get companies at a price that is attractive, even though they're other buyers? So what is it that is unique about you? That means you can either buy cheaper than anyone else or buy like anyone else, but add a lot more to the value of a company than anyone else. Uh, and then, and then what, what guarantees do I have that the proceeds will be shared between you and I in a, in a fair way on the upside and on the downside? Uh, and, and, and to think more about that rather than people just looking at track records saying, oh, this is a top quartile fund, so you know, I can just put my money in there, there's no danger. And, and then thinking about what, what is it you need exactly? Right. So, for example, if you need exposure to Africa, yeah, you have to go via private equity for sure. Like, there's hardly any public markets. But do you need exposure to Africa? Yes or no? If you do, then yeah. So, so think more fundamentally about what are your needs in terms of assets, and then go to basics uh, on on what makes a good investment versus not. And if you if you do not understand private markets well enough, you cannot make this assessment, and so you should stay away. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, I just wanted to get your thoughts on all this media coverage in the last couple of weeks about um, the private equity vultures coming to the UK and taking over companies. There's a lot of opposition, it seems, in the public arena. I mean, what, why, what do you think the problem there is? Do you think it's justified as well? I have some research coming up that looks at employee satisfaction in different with different type of owners, and in particular, when a company goes into private equity, how do people feel about it? Um, not only what quantitative ratings, but also what is it they say, like qualitative like reviews, and we analyze the words they use and things like that. Um, what we find is that like it is indeed very mixed, and it depends a lot on the kind of transactions and. It has been found in other research as well, so it's quite coherent. It seems that the key insight is that when companies were publicly listed and they go into private equity, it, it's not going down well with the employees, with the stakeholders. Like, like people find this transition pretty brutal. And we still don't know what it is exactly. Is it because like public market was so nice and private, uh, or, or because they target public market companies that are like badly governed and so then it's like an electroshock. We, we don't know exactly what the problem is, but we can see clearly that it's going, not going well for, and for, for anyone. In, 
in the private to private transactions, which is the, the bulk of the number of transactions in private equity, not in dollar, but in numbers, there we know that things are very different. People often, often appreciate the professionalization that comes with private equity. They appreciate the injection of cash, helping with developing the company, making acquisitions. So relaxation of financial constraint, we call it. Um, we have plenty of evidence of that. And so often when you have a private to private transaction, you do have uh, people in general much more happy with private equity. We still see some problems, especially for low, uh, low uh, employees, like uh, low on the hierarchy, um, because these people uh, tend, to, uh, tend to be, you know, the professionalization of priority may mean that, that they get squeezed quite a bit and they don't benefit from the upside. So practically may help the company, but it doesn't help them. They, they earn $10 an hour before and they still earn $10 an hour after. So it's a mixed picture. And the problem is that when the picture is so mixed with such so many examples, extreme examples of good things and of bad cases, then the industry associations are going to take the extremely good cases and put them on the table and, and think only about them and refuse to think about any other ones. Uh, and, and somebody who wants to write a strong newspaper article is, is going to find plenty of very bad cases. And, we'll be, and it would be easy to spin a story on the very bad cases. Um, and, and it's very easy to ignore the very good cases. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time and joining me. No, thank you. Thank you for having me.